This forced transition would be both immoral and close to impossible. Instead, we need to find an alternative method to test the difference. This alternative would have to use data instead of controlled trials. The problem with this alternative is it is really cheap and expedient. And like plastic bags, that which is cheap proliferates and pollutes. Welcome, you are listening to Peerism, the show that brings research and opinion to the mainstream. This is an attempt to piece together some thoughts. Behest of a few pieces of original science, and on the ground of a lattice work of facts, it is clear that the science concerning the wage gap in the West should make way for more falsifiable topics of gender discrimination. This will primarily serve as a criticism of a disconcerting statistical method by looking through the lens of the wage gap. Although this technique has many drawbacks, I will specifically focus on one little-known critique, which is the use of controls to intentionally or unintentionally obfuscate biases when trying to answer a scientific question. Following from this criticism, I will attempt to show why we can't and shouldn't use observational studies to answer scientific questions, and that they should only ever be used as a problem discovery tool. Before I get into the subject at hand, I will seek to untangle two different forms of scientific methods. Research studies in fields such as social science and medicine are often limited to identify the true causes of some underlying phenomena by using one of three experimental methods, being natural, field, or laboratory experiments. These are what we call causal experiments, or randomized controlled trials, where it's possible to scientifically identify the cause of some phenomena. When these experimental trials are not possible, other techniques, such as observational studies, can be used. However, among many other issues, observational studies promote the use of controls that themselves can be a direct driver of the problem at hand, therefore obfuscating potential biases. What follows is a description of the problem and how it has infiltrated the topical science of our time. The example will also showcase what we mean with the word control. Using an example from medicine, we can ask, does red meat lead to more heart attacks? Or is it simply the case that people who consume red meat generally live a more sedentary and less healthy lifestyle? For example, it's known that red meat consumers also smoke more. Hence, are the heart attacks unrelated to the consumption of red meat and instead of other related behavior? Stated differently, is there really a difference between a non-smoking, non-sedentary meat eater and a non-sedentary, non-smoking vegetarian? The best way to test it is to take two equivalent random subpopulations and ask one group to only make one change, which is to consume more red meat. This is a field experiment. As the study progresses, we can test the difference in the number of heart attacks over time 
across these two subpopulations. Each participant is randomly allocated a diet of which the effects can be studied. However, this method can be expensive, immoral, or downright impossible to use. For example, in social science, when we want to test the gender wealth gap, how can we possibly find two equivalent subpopulations of men and women? For a randomized experiment, we would need a group of women or men and have them transition over to the other sex. This forced transition would be both immoral and close to impossible. Instead, we need to find an alternative method to test the difference. This alternative would have to use data instead of controlled trials. The problem with this alternative is it is really cheap and expedient. And like plastic bags, that which is cheap proliferates and pollutes. The statistical technique that uses data without a randomized experiment goes by different names, but they are all equivalent in spirit. As a catch-all, we can just call them observational studies, which means the use of data and statistical tools to quantify relationships between variables without the need for randomized experiments. It does this by establishing pseudo-populations and comparing them against each other. This is where the word control comes in. Controls are the data, the variables used to equate one group with another to ensure they are similar in all respects, except for the fact that one consumes meat and the other doesn't. For example, let's assume we have data on self-reported red meat eaters, but now we include additional control data points for the individual consumers, like time spent in front of the television and the amount of cigarettes you smoke per day. And now, instead of running a randomized controlled trial, we use statistics to match up all the people that smoke and sit in front of the television for an equivalent amount of time, except for the fact that one consumes more red meat than the other, and then answer the question, Given their statistical similarities, apart from the change in meat consumption, does one population get more heart attacks than the other? So the question is, why is this data and statistics-driven method less reliable than a randomized controlled trial? Well, it is quite simple. What if even though the level of smoking and sitting in front of the TV are similar between populations, meat eaters also eat less vegetables, go to the gym less, and drink more. Well, if we didn't take these additional variables into account, there would be a bias in the results. These additional differences could even be fundamentally unmeasurable. The problem, however, is that, as mentioned in some scenarios, we are forced to adopt this method. In other words, we are forced to adopt a correlative as opposed to a causal result. Notwithstanding these issues, there is an unrelinquishing desire by some scientists to keep this method alive. Probably as a result of their own use of this method in the past and in current studies. 
They cast about for some excuse why this method is still relevant, while it clearly causes more disillusion than what it illuminates. Now, this gets us to the real meat of the topic. Let us have a look at the scientific process for studying wage inequality, where one is forced to use this technique. In studying the wage gap, we use a statistical technique called regression decomposition, i.e. an observational study, to identify all the variables that describe the absolute gap between groups. If that gap persists, it can be as a result of biases or other unmeasurable characteristics. Remember the gym, vegetables and drinking in the previous example. I take the opinion that the regression decomposition method is a dangerous form of inequality estimation. First, because it can be tweaked to fit your opinion in more ways that I can efficiently list. For example, researchers can add and remove controls, mostly without scorn. And secondly, because you can't even be sure whether the remaining gap is a result of an unobserved characteristic that may or may not be prejudiced. And lastly, the least reported, but I believe the most important issue. You don't know whether the controls themselves are independent of prejudice. Could it be that the controls themselves are carriers of bias? Let us go to a practical example. Glassdoor economist Andrew Chamberlain, who arguably has one of the biggest repositories of employee data in the world, shows that the single biggest cause of the gender pay gap is occupation and industry sorting of men and women into jobs that pay differently throughout the economy. After all the study's control adjustments, including occupational sorting, the unexplained statistical wage gap is 5.4 cents to the male dollar in the US. Note, the statistical gap are likely to be a lot smaller than even that. This study only controlled for age, education, years experience, job title, employer and location. And there are many more politically incorrect controls that would bring the gap closer to statistical zero. For example, researchers can also control for personality differences, cognitive variability, stability of past work experience, time with a company, overtime, maternity leave, expectations of maternity leave. In fact, a lot of research shows that the discrimination at this point could even flip to favor females. Most researchers do not include all these additional variables because they don't always have access to so many data points for samples this big. However, this is where it gets crucial not to say that there is no discrimination just because of a reversal of a statistical gap. Now it's necessary to identify whether there's discrimination at each step of the way. Could these controls themselves be harbingers of bias? The real question we should ask is not whether there is a statistical wage gap, because that part is small or negligible. What we should instead do is focus on the controls that bring that 24% absolute wage gap 
down to the 5.4% statistical wage gap. Why do women prefer certain industries, have less work experience and leave work at an earlier age? Are these controls dressed up as choices, not in fact constraints? For the purpose of this informal study, we will specifically investigate the first control because it has the biggest explanatory factor. In the US, occupation and industry sorting explains 54% of the overall pay gap. This is extremely large. So the question we will pose is, is occupational sorting discriminatory in nature? The first thing we have to identify is whether there are experiments to prove that women are forced, structurally or otherwise, into certain careers and hence that there is discrimination in the choices available to women. Here, similar to wage science, direct experimental evidence is hard to find. This means that we have to again go a level deeper from the control to that which can affect the control. A few things that have been noted to drive job selection is the amount of time on hand, personality, cognition, and even the proportion of men already occupying that field. One way to understand why differences exist in occupational choice is cross-country studies. Norway has noted an increasing difference between gender's choice of occupation and study direction over time. For researchers to understand what is going on, they have to look beyond Norway for conclusive evidence. A recent and the biggest study published in science in 2018 by researchers at Berkeley shows by studying 80,000 individuals in 76 countries that the more women have equal opportunities, the more they differ from men in their preferences. The results show that countries with greater equality see a smaller proportion of women taking degrees in STEM. At first glance, this seems to say that there is no discrimination in occupational choice. But equality is a slippery term, so hold on to this thought. We will get to it later. This difference between countries are likely to stem from the correlation between gender equality and welfare states. In such a society, you are not forced to choose a job that falls outside of your interests and aptitude to attempt to achieve a greater income. Women are not forced to compete with men to obtain high-paying jobs. They can instead focus on work of their own interest. For example, in Sweden, women are dominant in medicine and social work, while most engineering and construction jobs are done by men. According to the science, this mostly comes down to male and female tendencies. Scientific experiments have been carried out when children are left in a playroom, boys tend to gravitate towards trucks and trains, and women towards dolls and bears. What we have seen in recent decades is that jobs that focus on things like engineering and software development have a higher earnings potential due to the scalability of these technologies. Thus, they have a higher upper bound on wealth generation, while working with people has a lower upper bound on wealth generation. 
They are attempts to discredit research that shows differences in interest. Some follow-up studies have shown that when children are exposed to counter-stereotypical examples by a peer before play, they were more likely to enjoy a wider range of toys. This hardly discredits the original results. Instead, it shows that we have some flexibility when we are young to experiment. But further to this point, the stereotype persists with non-human primates in the wild. Various studies using rhesus monkeys, vervet monkeys, and chimpanzees show the same effect. Young females gravitate towards doll-like toys and males towards objects with wheels or ones which resemble toys or tools. What we know for a fact is that differences currently exist between women and men on various dimensions of interest. Fundamental preferences such as altruism, risk-taking, reciprocity, patience or trust constitute the foundation of choice theories and govern human behavior. A growing literature in economics and psychology documents important differences in preferences between the genders. These differences provide a key explanation for differential choices and outcomes between women and men in contexts such as occupational choice, financial investments, or educational decisions. Social role theory argues that true gender equality is when each gender is free to do what they really want to do. As a researcher, you want to investigate all possible factors outside of inherent tendencies to identify other causes that could potentially relate to discrimination. So here, the big question is, could it be possible that something like maternity, the expectation of future child-rearing, current child-rearing, founder and peer effects, role models, partnership and maybe marriage could have a role to play in occupational choice above and beyond personality and inherent interest. So yes, we can say that social welfare allows women to choose more traditionally female jobs because the social impediments matter less. But it still doesn't mean that the social impediments stop to exist at each level of welfare equality. For example, equality still does not mean equality in maternal parental care or childbirth, which to some extent can't be shoehorned into a category of choice. Let's dig into the topic of motherhood. Women mostly suffer the productivity burden of childbirth and child rearing. So, could some removable burdens in maternity or child rearing affect occupational choice? First, it is worth showing whether it has an effect at all. Some research shows that women pursuing innovative careers were less child-orientated than those planning careers moderately innovative or traditional for women. Additional research shows that inflexible choices pushes women out of the labor force at motherhood. Further, dedication to a career has also revealed to be a primary reason for childlessness. 
there is no good study on childlessness and occupational choice. But we do have some good information on educational attainment, which we can use as a proxy. Engineers' childless rate is at about 18%, natural scientists at about 20%, lawyers at 24%, while nursing is around 13%, teachers 12%, physicians 16%. As long as child choice is not just personality related, this could be a sign that motherhood or the expectation of motherhood has direct consequences on occupational choice. It could, however, be that women from different fields have predisposed differences in having children, but this needn't be the case. Women who work full-time and have higher status occupations had higher expectations to have children throughout their life, and this could be a sign that there is a tension between occupational choice and expected motherhood. Again, this is not scientifically conclusive yet. Another study shows that compared to those desiring children, child-free respondents scored significantly higher in independence and significantly lower in agreeableness and extroversion personality scores, meaning personality could, of course, have an effect to play. And personality, a more conclusive study, therefore, has to show occupational difference between three groups of women being voluntarily childless, involuntarily childless, and child-seeking. If the voluntarily childless and involuntarily childless have an occupational selection distance that is smaller than that of the child-seeking group, then childbirth and rearing in itself can more directly be related to differences in occupational choice. Although we don't have access to such a study yet, I would argue that current research and intuition points to the likelihood that the prospect of child-rearing, childbirth, and current child-rearing, unrelated to personality, has an effect on career choice. However, I do not think that this effect is nearly as strong as the personality effect or, for example, the role model effect. Let's for the moment assume that childbirth, the expectation of future child rearing and current child rearing has an effect on occupational choice. What systems can we employ to improve the distribution to the point where only personality differences account for the differences in occupational choice? This has to be unrelated to the Scandinavian model, given that it produces the opposite effect. The Scandinavian model of welfare allows personality differences to play out, which is a good thing. But what policies can we implement to allow for the differences between motherhood and non-motherhood to be ironed out, which is often painted as a choice, but for many, especially at the state level, would be regarded as a need as opposed to a choice. For example, there might be a need to have children to satisfy future state obligations like paying taxes and welfare to the old. What follows is a few policy 
options that are my own. They might work or not and still have to be tested. It would be crucial to study the effect of policies in each industry separately as they can have vastly different implications. So first, pay women exactly the same maternity stipend they would have received on their last year's salary, allow for free job-specific education one year after maternity leave, enter work at the same pay scale you would have been had it not been for the childbirth, pay for daycare services up until the age of six, give child-rearing women double the overtime rate of men paid by the state or have forced Fridays off with double pay also a potential child incentive until the child is aged three apart from motherhood that is always clothed as a choice there could be other factors too like custody and single parenting taking care of elders fear of male dominated groups with these factors we have to ask if they are in fact impediments, as it is not as clear-cut as childbirth, and whether they are unrelated to personality and satisfy a different need. Recall that other effects could also be at play, like founder effects, peer effects, role models, partnerships, and marriage. There is yet again very little research on these subjects. If these effects are large, then there would be a need for different solutions. For these additional factors, I haven't found good studies yet, but here are a few anecdotes. It has been shown that women perform better when they share a work environment with other women. In the Oxford Mathematics Department, they famously admitted their first female student, but she did not succeed. So the next year, the next single female student postponed her admission into the following year. When there were two mathematical female students together, they both succeeded. So there could be two effects at play. A peer effect that keeps women from performing well or a founder's effect that keeps women from entering the field. It sets an expectation of the likelihood of success when looking at the proportion of men to female, which can be very psychologically damaging. All of these are unrelated to tendency and personality effects and should be given a closer look. We can also identify some of the outliers in highly technical natural sciences. For example, women and men equally split in astrophysics. We should ask why is this the case? Could it possibly be a founder effect from a historically inclusive group of researchers? There are additional qualities like the preferences for customers to deal with businesses representatives of the same gender. Could this possibly mean that occupations traditionally occupied by men, like investment banking, are doomed to remain mostly male because of the male gendered class they are dealing with. Again, a possible effect unrelated to tendency and personality. 
Although occupational choice has the largest effect on the wage gap, the number of years experience and leaving work earlier also has an effect. And more likely than not, childbirth most probably has an effect on these two wage controls. However, there could be other effects like grandparental care, family commitments, local location preferences, tax inducements. They all could have an effect on the number of years of experience and whether or not you leave work early. A further three independent studies show the immediate effect that childbirth has on subsequent female income. You see a precipitous drop in income after childbirth. Consider the following evidence from Warren Farrell. Women who have never been married and are without children earn 117% of their male counterparts. The comparison controls for education, hours worked and age. So why is this the case? The decisions of never married women without children are more like that of men's. They work longer hours, they don't leave their careers, and never married men are more like women. They've got careers in arts, for example. The result? The women out earn the men. So, when all 25 choices are the same, the great news for women is that they then make more than men. The sad news, as I have portrayed, is that it is not really 25 choices. To a large part, it feels like 25 constraints, even after accounting for personality. Can we look at each of these 25 factors to identify if any constraints can be lifted? Of course, not fully, as it would discriminate against men or go against inherent tendencies, but partially to remove whatever biases still might exist. On closing, wage science should not be used to identify discrimination. Instead, the controls in wage science, as well as recruitment and hiring control science, should be used to study discrimination. In the above example, I've shown how the controls in wage science can be used as a problem discovery tool to study potential discrimination. I will look at experimental science in recruitment and hiring in the future. Although they can, for the most part, not provide direct evidence to the effects of wage discrimination, they help report on general employment discrimination that can be used to inform policy design. Some researchers would say that a skepticism for statistical models that have been so widely used could derail people's belief in science. The truth is that many of these methods have already fallen out of favor, but they have been slow to be killed off with not enough criticism coming from the scientific community themselves. As readers of science, we have to be able to cast off our shells to limb up our wits for a voyage towards truth. Overall, I believe observational studies can and should serve as a method of problem discovery, but should never be used to prove or disprove a scientific hypothesis. Thanks for joining us this week. You can find us at Peerism1 on Twitter. Goodbye.